Take a Bible and open to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. We're reading through the New Testament together this year. We've provided reading plans for you. I hope you're tracking along with the weekly reading, five chapters a week through the New Testament. This week, this Sunday morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. We're going to read the passage in just a moment, and I'll want to try to set the stage contextually for what's happening in this passage, but I'd really like to just start by reading Luke 19.10, which says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you were around Emmanuel in 2015 and 16, we plowed all the way through the gospel of Luke from beginning to end. And over 18 months, I did my best to drill this verse into your head. We talked about it over and over and over and over again. We talked about the fact that the gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus who came to seek and to save people who were lost in their trespasses and sins. That verse governs the entirety of the gospel of Luke, and it certainly governs our passage this morning. So the big idea of our passage, very simply, very directly, is that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let me mention a few contextual things. One contextual note regarding chronology and one contextual note regarding geography. So we'll start with chronology. Luke 19, the chapter that we're in, describes the end of Jesus' public ministry and the beginning of the end of his life. So when you come to Luke 19, you understand that all of Jesus' public ministry is now in the rearview mirror. This is almost like the last stop before Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem. There's been three years, give or take, of preaching and healing, casting out demons, uh, discipling a group of men who will lead the church when Jesus has died and been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. All of that ministry is now in the rearview mirror. And you'll notice if you just look at Luke 19 down in verse 28, you find the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So his earthly ministry is behind him. He's entering Jerusalem for the very last time, this very last week of Jesus' life that he spends in and around Jerusalem. Some theologians call it Passion Week. Some theologians call it Holy Week. But the end of his ministry has come, and now we're at the beginning of the end of the very last week of Jesus' life. Now, one note on geography. Let's talk about Jericho because we're going to read about Jericho here. Jericho was about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. The elevation of Jerusalem, it's a remarkable change in elevation between these cities. Jerusalem sits about 3,500 feet higher with regard to sea level than Jericho. So to go from Jericho to Jerusalem was to climb uphill. To go from Jerusalem to Jericho was to go straight downhill. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was dangerous. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the Good Samaritan and this man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was beaten and attacked and robbed on this road. It was a dangerous road. Now, Jericho was a wealthy city. Some ancient P 
people, ancient historians, ancient geographers called it the city of the palms. They said it was a beautiful city. It was a wealthy city. When the Romans took over this part of the world, they recognized the wealth in Jericho, and they said Jericho will be a center for taxation. So when we read Luke 19, it shouldn't surprise you that there is a man named Zacchaeus who is a chief tax collector in Jericho, a chief tax collector. He's not just a low-level IRS agent calling you to check on your last year's tax return. He is the chief tax collector. He is in charge of all of the taxation in this region, the only tax collector given this title in the New Testament. Now, if you have been around church any amount and you've heard sermons that involve tax collectors, what I'm about to say you know is nothing new to you. This is just repeat. But if you've not grown up around church, you need to know something about tax collectors. Tax collectors in Bible days and Bible times worked for the Roman Empire. They worked for Rome. And being a tax collector was a highly lucrative career. A person could make an incredible amount of money as a tax collector, especially if you were the chief tax collector. Rome essentially said to these contracted tax collectors, this is how much money we need you to collect, a certain percentage, a certain dollar amount, whatever it may be. And then they turned the tax collectors loose to do the collecting. And it was sort of an unwritten rule, unspoken rule, that if you're able to collect more than what we require, that's yours. That's why John the Baptist, when he told tax collectors how to repent, said, tax collectors, collect no more than you're supposed to collect. Take your salary and don't try to skim off the top. But many tax collectors did that. And the Jewish people living in this part of the world hated tax collectors for two reasons. Number one, they hated them because they viewed them as traitors. They were working for Rome. They were working for an occupying force. It would be as if the Chinese took over the United States of America and said, we need someone to be the tax collector and you volunteered. We would say, hey, we're still Americans and now you're working for the Chinese Communist Party. People wouldn't like you for doing that. Second reason they didn't like tax collectors is they were generally, not all of them, but they were generally dishonest in their dealings with people. And they did exact more than Rome required them to exact, and they did line their own pockets through their own dishonesty. So, take your Bible, let's read this story about Jesus and Zacchaeus, and then let's pray that God would bless the reading of his word. Luke 19, verse 1, says, He entered Jericho, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up at him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the inspired, inerrant, authoritative scriptures. We thank you for the gospel of Luke, and we thank you for this story about Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, coming to seek and to save people who are lost in their trespasses and sins. Lord, give us insight this morning as we think about Jesus and his work and how his work impacts our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think with me for just a moment about children's games. I want you to go back before video games were a thing. I'm not talking about video games. I even want you to go back before board games were a thing. I just want you to think with me about classic, classic children's games. How many of you, when you were growing up, just quick show of hands, played Ring Around the Rosie? Right? Ring Around the Rosie. It's a thrilling game designed for children, not older folks, where you dance in a circle and then you fall down on the ground. So some of you are thinking, I could play that once, and then I'd be down on the ground and I'm not getting back up. Some people think that Ring Around the Rosie as a game actually has its roots in the bubonic plague and that there's some references to the Black Death, but there's a lot of different old versions of Ring Around the Rosie. You can look that up. Nobody really knows the origin for sure. How about the game Duck, Duck, Goose? Ever played Duck, Duck, Goose? I'm a Kansas Jayhawk fan. We have a very important basketball game today. I got on the internet last night and was scrolling through Twitter, and I saw my team on the practice court playing Duck, Duck, Goose. And I thought, I don't think that's the game that we're going to play tomorrow. I think you ought to practice free throws. I think you ought to practice the offense. It made me a little bit nervous. I don't know about you, but all of my memories of Duck, Duck, Goose is that it was a fun game until that one kid was it, and they just walked around saying duck over and over and over again. And they refused to say goose, and you just sat there thinking, who picked this kid? You knew that this was the kid that was going to do this. So you've all played Duck, Duck, Goose. How about Red Rover? Oh, yeah, groans with Red Rover. I don't know that you're allowed to play Red Rover anymore. Some of you that work in schools can tell us if the kids can play Red Rover. This is a deadly, deadly game that basically involves clotheslining people who are trying to run through your arms. And I think about playing Red Rover at Belmar Elementary School. I don't know what hurts worse when you're squeezing someone's hand and someone runs through there and just rips your wrist off or when you're doing the running and the people holding hands do that last minute raise the arms right to the throat level. If you played this game as a kid, you might need to see a chiropractor today. You might still be getting adjustments up in your neck. How about red light, green light? Remember playing this game? I hate this game. I was never fast growing up, never had a chance to win this game, always the last one across the line. 
do not like red light, green light. How about house? All kids play this. You remember when you were little saying, let's play house. I'll be the dad, you'll be the mom, I'll be the kid, I'll do this, you do that. What you don't realize or what some of you don't realize is that your kids who you send to the nursery down the hall play house in the nursery. And we get a glimpse into your house because they say what you say, and they make the rules that you make, and they do the things that you do. And so we know lots about some of you folks. How about hide-and-seek? Maybe the classic children's game, hide-and-seek. Quick show of hands, when it comes to hide-and-seek, you fall into one of two categories. How many of you were the sibling or the friend who at some point in the game sent someone to hide and then you went off to do something else and you never went to find them. How many of you are the poor soul still in counseling today because your siblings left you in hiding and you were there in the cupboard for hours and hours and hours saying, surely they're going to find me at some point. I thought about hide and seek this week when I read this passage. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek, he came to seek and to save the lost. And you read about Zacchaeus when Jesus is in Jericho and he's passing through, it's almost as if he's up hiding in the tree. You understand he's not hiding, he's trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, but Jesus goes and he finds him and it, it made me think about the game, the children's game, hide and seek. I want you to understand that when Luke says, when Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, he's not talking about the children's game hide-and-seek. And when he says that he's come to seek what is lost, he's not saying, I just came to locate it. I came to find it. I came to determine what the GPS coordinates are of this person or this thing. When the, when the Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost, the key to understanding what Jesus has come to do in seeking us and saving us is understanding what the Bible means when the Bible says we are lost. I have something lost right now. I have two keys to my pickup truck. One of them is lost, and I can't find it. I don't know the location, but that's not what the Bible's talking about when it says that people are lost. It doesn't mean that God can't find them. It doesn't mean that they've gone off the radar, so to speak. When the Bible talks about human beings being lost and all of us left to ourselves are lost, the Bible's talking about our sinfulness, our depravity, our refusal to let God be God in our lives, our refusal to worship God the way that we were created to worship God. The Bible's talking about our desire to run from God, to have nothing to do with God, to be our own master, our own sovereign, our own ruler, and to forget about God completely. This gospel, the gospel of Luke, is about Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came to seek and to save what was lost. 
one of the things I want to make sure that you understand and I understand is not just what it means to be lost, but I want you to understand what Jesus actually did to seek us and to save us. And I'm going to be honest with you. The things that we're going to talk about right here are not in Luke 19. When Luke 19 was happening, when this story was taking place, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. He'd not been buried. He'd not been rose from the dead. He'd not ascended to heaven. Lots of things hadn't happened. So the details are not spelled out here. How did Jesus seek and save the lost? One of the best places you can look in the whole Bible to answer that question is the book of Hebrews. And so I've given you a a couple of blanks here and a bunch of references, and we're going to move through these quickly. And I'm going to encourage you to go back and to look at these verses in the book of Hebrews to see what the Bible has to say about how Jesus sought us and saved us. But I want you to understand this work. It's very, very important. How did Jesus... Seek us and save us. Number one, we would use the theological term incarnation. The incarnation. Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 15. The Son of God became human. The Son of God became human. Hebrews says that He partook of our flesh. God became man without ceasing to be God. It's the miracle of the incarnation. It's the miracle of Christmas. And he did that so that he could take our place on the cross. Secondly, obedience. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. You see this in Hebrews chapter 4, where the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are tempted, yet he was completely and totally without sin. He never did or said or thought or felt anything that violated God's law. He lived a life of perfect obedience. Thirdly, atonement. Atonement. Jesus died a sacrificial death. Hebrews talks about this at great length. One of the clearest passages is in Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 that says, Jesus offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And the author of Hebrews is clear that the blood of bulls and goats cannot, could not ever truly deal with sin. They were all pointing forward to the true, ultimate, one-time sacrifice that Jesus Christ made when he died on the cross, making a payment for our sins. That word, at one, atonement, it means that we are now at one with God. Previously, our sin separated us from God, but Jesus has done something in his death on the cross that has now made his people at one with God. Fourthly, resurrection and ascension. Resurrection and ascension. Hebrews 12. The classic passage in Hebrews 12 that says, Jesus, we look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter. Some translations say the author of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven, the right hand of God the Father. How did he get there? Well, not only did he die, not only was he buried, but he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven where he is now reigning and ruling over the cosmos. Fifthly, we're not done. Jesus' work is not done. Intercession. 
intercession. Jesus' suffering work is finished, but he is still working on behalf of his people now. Hebrews 2 says Jesus is a faithful and a better and a great high priest, and he is able to help his people when they are in need. That's real-time help. That's not just that he helped you at the cross, although he did. He helped you in the greatest way at the cross, but Hebrews is saying he can help you now when you're suffering, when you're tempted, when you're struggling, when you're doubting. Jesus is able to help his people. Last, the parousia, which is a fancy theological word for Jesus' second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 says there will be a day when Jesus Christ comes back not to die for sins, but to fully and finally save his people. So just put it all up on the screen together at once. When we say, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, we're not talking about children's games, hide and seek. We're not talking about mere location or he came to find our GPS coordinates. We're saying this is what Jesus did for us. He became a man. He obeyed perfectly. He died as a sacrifice. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is interceding and helping on our behalf even now. And one day, he will come again. All of that's not exactly clear yet in Luke 19, but it's going to be clear very, very soon as you read through this story. And when you and I read, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and we see Jesus and Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he comes down, you and I are not to think, oh, he just he found him in the tree, and he brought him down, and they had a nice dinner together. He did find him in the tree. They did have a meal together, but this is how Jesus saves sinners. This is how he seeks and saves what is lost. Now let's talk about Zacchaeus. Let's talk about what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ finds and saves a sinner. What happens when the grace of God comes colliding into the life of a sinful person? I don't know if you know this or not, but the world is very confused about salvation. There are a lot of Christians who are very confused about the answer to this question. What happens when the Lord Jesus Christ finds and saves a sinner? There's all sorts of answers given. The answer probably given by the world most frequently is to say that when a sinner is found, they suddenly become judgmental and holier than thou and self-righteous. That's how the world tends to look at believing Christian people. They tend to have this idea that we think we're saved because we're better than everybody else. You understand that has nothing to do with being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's a common perception in the world. Christians have lots of different answers to this question. What happens when a sinner is found and saved. Some people would tell you that that person stops sinning entirely, that they're done sinning. I took a New Testament class in high school. I had a very kind man who was our instructor. And I remember, this is the one thing I take away from the New Testament class, he told us one time that he had not sinned in at least nine months. That's a pretty good run. 
I remember sitting in that class thinking, I don't think I've made it nine minutes. Nine months. That's not what happens when a person gets saved. They don't stop sinning entirely, at least on this side of eternity. Other answers. Our prosperity preaching friends, if you want to call them friends, would say that once you get saved, you suddenly become healthy, wealthy, and happy. The low-grade prosperity gospel that we would laugh at that version of prosperity teaching, but the low-grade version that exists in many of our churches says life is just going to go better for you. Things are just going to sort of run more smoothly. You may not be a millionaire. You may not have lots of big stuff, lots of fancy stuff, but you can just sort of expect life to be generally better. Some of our charismatic friends would say that when a person gets saved, they will experience miraculous, supernatural things. And if you don't experience miraculous, supernatural things, then it's probably a sign that you aren't saved at all. To which I would say, well, you know, I've sinned within the last nine months, and I'm not always happy, and I'm not uber wealthy, although the Lord has been faithful to me, and I still struggle with lots of things. Life doesn't always go the way that I want it to go. So I look at all those answers, and I say, what actually happens? What does the Bible say to this question? What happens when God's grace collides with the life of a sinful person, when Jesus finds a sinner and saves a sinner? Two things. Number one, repentance. And number two, faith. When Jesus finds a sinner and saves a sinner and God's grace collides into the life of a sinful person, the two things that you can look for are number one, repentance, changing your mind about sin, and number two, faith, believing the promises of God that find their fulfillment in the finished work and the ongoing work and the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Look at this story. If your Bible's open, look at Luke 19. Verse 1 says that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. Verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Being a chief tax collector who was rich, what Luke is saying without saying it in between the lines is this is a dishonest man, this is a cheating man, this is a lying man, this is someone who exploits other people, and he passes along what he needs to pass along to Rome, but he keeps the extra and the excess for himself. He's willing to betray his kinsmen, he's willing to work for the occupying force of Rome, and he's willing to lie and cheat and steal to get ahead. The crowd, Luke tells us, was big. There was a big crowd. And Zacchaeus was a little man, so he couldn't see. And he wanted to see Jesus. So enter the story. There's a sycamore tree. And Zacchaeus enters the sycamore tree. And he's looking. And Luke says it's almost a joke. This is almost like a bad dad joke from Luke. He says Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. He is seeking to see Jesus. Jesus comes to the tree. He looks up at Zacchaeus. He says, come down, and I'm going to your house. He literally invites himself into Zacchaeus' home and into Zacchaeus' life. 
And I would simply remind all of us as Americans that when the Lord Jesus Christ seeks and saves a sinner, it's not just a free ticket so that you can get into heaven when you die, but it's actually the Lord Jesus Christ inviting himself into your life. He has the audacity to invite himself into your life, into every area of your life. On a human level, that's not how we operate. On a human level, we say, I invite people into my life. I invite people into my home. I will invite people into my church. But the Lord Jesus Christ flips it, and he invites himself into the lives of sinful people. You understand that there's grumbling taking place here, verse 6. They don't like the fact that he's hanging out with the tax collector. That's in verse 7. They saw it. They grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And then in verse 8, all of a sudden, Zacchaeus pops up and he starts talking. In between here, there's a lot of conversation that Luke has not recorded. There's a walk from the sycamore tree to Zacchaeus' home. There's a conversation that takes place between the Lord Jesus Christ and this chief tax collector. And Luke doesn't detail all the things that they talked about. We can speculate. You imagine that Jesus might have brought up the Ten Commandments. You may remember not long before this, a rich young ruler came to talk, about, uh, talk to Jesus about salvation, and Jesus brought up the Ten Commandments. Loving God most of all, loving others. And then Jesus started to list off several of the commandments. You can imagine Jesus talking to Zacchaeus about commandment number one, you should love God over money. You can imagine Jesus talking to Zacchaeus about commandment number eight and nine, you should not steal and you should not lie. Commandment 10, you should not covet what other people have and wish that it was yours. I don't think it's hard to imagine Jesus and Zacchaeus talking about what the Old Testament had to say about restitution towards other people. The Bible has a lot to say in the Old Testament about if you are guilty of an offense, how you make it right with other people. I imagine that they had a conversation about that. I even imagine they had a conversation about Abraham, and the reason I say that is because Abraham comes up in verse 9. There were lots of people who claimed to be a son of Abraham, and Jesus usually looked at people who said that and said, no, you're not a son of Abraham, you're a son of the devil. But he says to this man, he really is a son of Abraham, which makes me think that they've probably talked about Abraham. They probably talked about Genesis 15, 6, where sinful Abraham believed he had faith in the Lord and his promises, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And I imagine Jesus talking with Zacchaeus about, Zacchaeus, restitution needs to be made, but the only way that you can be made right with God is to believe is to be a person of faith. So they're having this conversation, and in the end, Zacchaeus pipes up, and he says, I'm going to give away half of what I have, and if I've stolen from anyone, I will refund it or restore it fourfold. What the Old Testament said is that in the worst-case scenario, the worst-case scenario, you should restore or provide restitution at a fourfold rate. Zacchaeus does that, and he adds on top of it, giving away half of what he has. Jesus' comment is that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. Then Jesus explains how that salvation came. 
Was it because Zacchaeus was smart? No. Was it because Zacchaeus was willing to give away a bunch of stuff? No. Was it because Zacchaeus was such a a good climber of sycamore trees? No. Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house not because Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, but because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke is the only gospel that tells this story. And I think it's obvious that as he describes the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus, Luke intends for us to see Zacchaeus not as a perfect example, but as a good example of what repentance looks like. And so let's finish with this question. What does Zacchaeus teach us about repentance? Number one, true repentance is joyful. It's joyful. It's not how the world thinks about repentance. The word world hears the word repentance and thinks that sounds terrible. That sounds like all the fun just went out the door. But when Zacchaeus repents and he's beginning this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke tells us that he received Jesus joyfully. Verse 6. This was not, oh, well, it was a good run as the chief tax collector. Made a lot of money back in the good old days. Wild stuff back then. Now I'm on the straight and narrow. This was a man who looked back on the good old days not as good at all. And suddenly he met the Lord Jesus Christ and he's filled with joy. Not only is he filled with joy, but he goes over and above the minimum of what the Old Testament law required in terms of restitution. The minimum was something like double. The maximum was fourfold. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to do the fourfold and I'm going to raise you half of my goods. I'm going to give them away. No one's twisting his arm to do this. Nobody's bullying him into a corner and telling him, you have to do this if you want to go to heaven, but this is what true repentance looks like. True repentance doesn't seek to do the minimum. True repentance doesn't seek to get as close to sin as possible without sinning. True repentance goes over and above, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus is doing here. He is joyfully going over and above. Listen, when the Lord Jesus Christ finds you, and when you find that He is better than anything this world has to offer, joyful repentance will flow out of your heart. Repentance means a change of mind. Zacchaeus has literally changed his mind about what is most valuable. Before he got in the tree and met Jesus, he thought money was the most valuable thing. He's changed his mind. He's repented, and it's reflected in his life in that he is joyfully receiving Jesus and going over over and above in terms of restitution. Secondly, while we're talking about restitution, true repentance affects others. It affects others. Zacchaeus' repentance was more than just a personal, private conversation with God. That's where it started. True repentance starts with you talking to God, confessing your sin to God, agreeing with God 
about your sin, but true repentance moves towards people, other people, the people that you've wronged or sinned against. And let's just be honest, this is where repentance sometimes becomes challenging for us. There's a part of us that says, hey, I'll talk to God about this personally, quietly, one-on-one. Me and God will get square. But now you're saying, I've got to talk to the people that I've sinned against? My repentance has to be directed toward my spouse. My repentance has to be directed towards my children. My repentance has to be directed towards my parents, my employer or my employees, the people sitting next to me on a Sunday morning. Yes, repentance involves confessing your sin to God, agreeing with God about your sin problem, but it also involves other people. Thirdly, true repentance is a result of grace. And this is where we come back to the irony, the irony of Zacchaeus seeking to see Jesus and then Jesus being the one, verse 5, who comes to Zacchaeus, Jesus being the one, verse 9, that says salvation has come to this house and Jesus being the one who explains salvation has come to this house because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Let me go back to the previous point that we made just to loop back a little bit. What happens when Jesus finds and saves a sinner? What happens is repentance and faith. And many times we get the order backwards in our minds. We think, no, I'm the one that repents of sin and believes in Jesus, and then he saves me. We have the idea that it's our repentance and our faith that invites God's grace into our lives. But the story being painted here and the story throughout the New Testament is exactly the opposite. It's that God's grace takes the initiative. It's that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. And I got news for you. If Jesus doesn't come to seek us, none of us will seek him. The Bible could not be more clear about this. Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, says, No one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That phrase is in the Bible three times. To drill it home in our hearts, you were not the one who came to seek God. God in His mercy and His grace came to seek you. You understand, when we think about Luke 19, chief tax collector of Jericho, Zacchaeus, was not saved because he climbed up on a sycamore tree. The chief tax collector of Jericho, Zacchaeus, was saved Because the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a tree at Calvary. It was not Zacchaeus' repentance and faith that invited God's grace into his life. Nor is it mine, nor is it yours. But it is God's grace that moves us to repentance and faith. Look at what the Bible says. Acts 11. To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
God is the one who grants repentance to sinners. Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not your repentance that seeks God's kindness. It's God's kindness that moves you to repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It's not you coming to a knowledge of the truth that then results in repentance. It's God granting repentance as a gift that leads sinners to a knowledge of the truth. What happens when God's grace finds and saves a sinner? What happens is repentance and faith. Left to ourselves, none of us seek God, which means this. As you sit in this room, if your heart feels any measure of brokenness over sin, if you agree with God that you have a sin problem, you agree that you've fallen short of His standards, and if you have a mustard seed of faith that the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, obeyed, died, was raised, ascended, is interceding now, and will come back someday. If you have a mustard seed of faith that those things are true, it's because God's grace is at work in your life. It's not because you have a great Sunday school teacher. It's not because you have a great pastor. It's not because we sang the right songs this morning. It's not because you're super spiritual or intelligent. It's because God's grace is at work in your life. And the response that God's people make to His grace is repentance. Ongoing repentance. Turning from sin. Reminding yourself that you have a sin problem. And believing that the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. Let's pray together.